Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. Come on, stand by. Stand by on top. It's contact. Take out enter, it's contact. Okay, the survivors on the yacht. Stand by on top. Let me strike take. Rich. Stand by on the drop. ASRK going. Now. First life raft is about, uh, is less than half a mile from him. Okay, yep, the strata looks good. Okay, the two, two rafts look, uh, look reasonable there. It's going to take quite a while. Okay, the, uh, the ASRK looks like it will straddle him, uh, Taka. You should be able to see that out your window now. Audio there recorded on board RAAF. P3 Orion A9760 on a search and rescue mission over the Southern Ocean in January 1997. Hello and welcome to this second of three episodes featuring the Queensland Air Museum's Lockheed AP3C Orion A9760. You see, two distress calls had gone out from solo round-the-world yachtsmen. One, a Frenchman named Thierry Dubois from on board Amnesty International, and the other from Englishman Tony Bullimore on the Exide Challenger, both of whom had foundered in the heavy seas in the Southern Ocean. Four RAAF Orions took part in the search-and-rescue operation that this triggered. I'll let RAAF Flight Lieutenant Ludo Derricks, commanding 760, which was at the time designated Rescue 251, I'll let him pick up the story. Yes, good morning, this is uh, Rescue 251, Flight Lieutenant Derricks speaking. Okay, at the moment uh, we're about 700 miles southwest of Perth. That makes us about halfway to the search area. Uh, we're doing about 350 miles per hour at uh, 31,000 feet, and uh, we should be there in the search area in about two hours. OK, uh, the weather we're expecting uh, is about 45 knots of wind uh, at low level, a fair bit of low cloud and, uh, of course, quite cool temperatures. Uh, expecting the sea state to be around a 4 or 5, which uh, probably means these guys are going to get bogged around a fair bit. and. Uh, that's going to make uh, life pretty hard for them down there. Okay, we've been asked by the uh, Rescue Coordination Centre to search for two separate beacons about 15 miles apart. Each beacon's been set off by a different uh, boat. One of them is uh, the Exide Challenger, the other one is the Amnesty International. So we're expecting to go there, uh, search uh, the first area, hopefully locate the survivor, have a look at his condition, and uh, if that's uh, if he's in good condition, we'll then proceed to the next position and uh, look for the survivor of the second vessel. Okay, we'll uh, go out there and do the best job we can, of course, and uh, we'll have a talk to you when we get back. Rescue two five one out. Once the yachtsmen were located, air sea rescue kits were dropped to them. Communication was established and the GPS fix that was established by the Orions was transmitted to HMAS Adelaide, which in due course arrived to pick them up. 
Just a final brief piece of audio from Flight Lieutenant Derricks, who had been in radio contact with Dubois. OK, he's turning his radio off. Okay. Roger, OK. Uh, you want to... Yep, uh, just for the crew, he's, uh, he's fine and well. He's a bit cold, but uh, he said he slept last night. He feels quite rested. Uh, he's uh, for, the, for his family. He's, uh, he just wants to let everyone know that uh, he's OK and uh, he's, uh, he's sorry that he's causing uh, so many people a heartache. Now, I am very grateful to have been given this footage by two former Defence Media NCOs, then Flight Sergeant RAAF Trevor Grant, who shot the footage on board A9760, and then leading seaman Royal Australian Navy Brad Cohn, who was gathering footage on board HMAS Adelaide. A9760 is, of course, as I've said, now proudly on display at the QAM Caloundra, and this is the second of three episodes that we are devoting to the RAAF Orions and to our Orion in particular. Last week I spoke with QAM volunteer guide Morris Ritchie, who piloted Orions and, before them, Neptunes for the RAAF. Next week you'll hear my conversation with QAM volunteer Ted Gray, who kept a detailed photographic and diary record of the huge undertaking that saw QAM volunteers dismantle A9760 from where it had landed after its final flight in 2018 at the Sunshine Coast Aerodrome at Maroochydore, then trucked it to QAM and then painstakingly reassembled it. But today you're going to hear from two QAM restoration volunteers, a former Air Force aircraft technician, Chris Bewley, and a flight engineer, Peter Scavell, both of whom worked on Australia's Orions. These two gentlemen wearing their high vis can often be seen around the place on a Tuesday or Wednesday doing their bit, making their contribution to keep our Orion in good condition so that you can come as a member of the public and stand in awe uh, beneath this massive aircraft and hear something of its history. Before we get to Chris and Pete, don't forget that you can read the provenance of A9760 on the Queensland Air Museum website. Click on Collections and look for the Lockheed Orion and you'll see photographs and details of its service life meticulously researched by QAM historian Ron Cuskelly. Ron's history includes a detailed record of the January 1997 search and rescue operations. But in order to hear from the people who served in and flew in and worked on these aircraft, uh, it's always a great joy to meet up with the people who are now retired, certainly, but who can look back on many years of service and who are involved uh, on a regular basis maintaining the display. So firstly, we'll hear from Chris Bewley, an aircraft technician, lovely guy, and then from another 
charming gentleman whose uniform, by the way, whose uh, flight suit uh, is on display also. If you get the chance to be guided into the interior of the Orion, greeting you uh, almost immediately is Peter Scavell's flight suit, just to give you an idea of what that looked like. He likes to make the comment that he was a little thinner in those days. Peter, you're looking marvellous today, mate, I can say. So firstly, this was my brief conversation, just a few minutes, with Chris Bewley. G'day, Chris. Yeah, how are you going, Gary? Yeah, good to meet you. First of all, why don't you tell us where you're from and what is your background in aviation? I was born in the UK but came here when I was 17 and uh, joined the Air Force in 72. Um, and uh, went through right through to the year 2000, so 28 and a half years I did. And what were you doing in the RAF? I was a aircraft technician um, on aircraft engines and airframes, things like that. All right, so for what kinds of work would you be doing on airframes and engines? Mainly on the engines, um, you'd be doing weekly checks, yearly checks, monthly checks, uh, before flight checks, after flight, in between flight. Uh, refueling, oiling, uh, and just generally checking that they're okay and safe to fly. And you mentioned airframe as well? Airframes, you'd have a look at uh, any of the structure, make sure there's no damage from bird strikes or people running into them with bikes and things like that. But yeah, no, it's pretty easy really, um, just looking after the airframes themselves. A visual check usually could tell a lot of stories mm. about whether it was in good nick or not, so yeah. There must have been times when you needed to pull things apart, but you could generally get a sense by a visual check. Yep. Yep, it's, okay. things sort of stood out, you know, you soon notice something, if it looks odd, okay. it must be odd, so <laughs> something's wrong, something's happened. And which aircraft did you work on? I started on the DC-3 uh, wow. over in Perth, wow. and the Mackie Jet Trainer, uh, I did quite a few years there. Then I came back to Sydney, uh, working on the C-130s and the B-707, Boeing 707s. Then um, from there, back to Perth again, for a few years, same aircraft. DC-3, Caribou now, and the Mackie. And from there down to Melbourne to a desk job for three years, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, I didn't enjoy Melbourne, but that's another story. Um, and then across to Adelaide on the Orion. On the Orion, I did seven and a half years. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it, probably the best time of my 28 years. And then my last posting was to Amberley uh, um, at the Ipswich. And uh, I was the engine fleet manager for a couple of years. And then I took the took a redundancy package and got out. Okay, now that's fascinating. There's a lot there we could unpack, but yeah, let's talk about Orions because yep. that's what we're doing today. Yep. Um, you say it was the best time mm -hmm. in your career. Was that because of the aircraft, or what? What was the reason why it was the best time? It was. There's probably not only the aircraft, but also the camaraderie with the, the people you work with, um, the places you went to, um, and going on some of the operations of the aircraft all over the world. So it was good. So tell us about a couple of those. What, what operations? Where did you go? I uh, went to Malaysia. Butterworth was the airbase uh, twice for three-week deployments, um, and that was good. One flight I went out to, um, one of the trips out to the east towards Vietnam. I had a look at the ships out there and what they do out there. Um, and then in August 93, I was in the Fincastle 93, which is a submarine hunting competition between the New Zealanders, the Canadians, the English and ourselves mm -hmm. and we won both the trophies that time so it was good <laughs> very good so was it customary for an aircraft technician to travel on these missions it would depend uh, where you were going um, and unfortunately the costs involved mm. the monetary costs where did you need 
um, accommodation and food and things like that. So unfortunately, the money did come into it a few times, but most times you could get away with it and go over with them. Now, let's think about Orion's for a second. I mean, we're standing in one right now. It's a magnificent, you know, display that we have here, 760. what are your particular memories of this aircraft to work on? Probably, as I say, the job satisfaction that I got for the seven and a half years, you know, right from when I first started there to when I left, you know, I didn't want to leave but had to go. Um, so, yeah, just mostly job satisfaction and the camaraderie with the guys. I'm still in contact with most of the guys 20-odd years later on Facebook, things like that. So, so yeah. And um, an easy aircraft to work on, difficult. What? How would you describe it in layman's terms compared to the other aircraft you worked on? It was perhaps a little bit taxing on the brain a few times. Uh, you really had to think about what you were going to do, check the publications, things like that, and just yeah, just through there. Some of the early aeroplanes, like the Mackie and the Dakota, pretty easy to work on, pretty um, uh, forgiving aeroplanes, both of them. So, yeah, but this one, you really had to think about what you were going to do and, and, and organise it from there. I guess that comes with a more complex and advanced aircraft, doesn't it, with many systems and uh, therefore there's, it's a bit more complicated. It is, yeah, although it was a probably designed back in the late 60s with the Lockheed Electra, um, it did get updated a few th- with a few things, mostly not the, air- the engines or airframes, mostly the electronics inside, um, but some of the things in the engines were slightly better off than they initially were, um, mostly electronic-wise. So it was a bit of a nightmare sometimes, but we got there. Now, these Allison turboprops, they delivered how much power? Uh, each one's about 4,600 horsepower. Mm. So it's quite a lot, each one. Hence, you were able to shut down one, or sometimes two, and be on loiter speed on a mission. Yep. Um, for a, for a civilian to walk in here, it, it's just, it just seems extremely luxurious. You know, there's plenty of room, uh, you had air conditioning, you had uh, the galley facilities down the back and rest facilities and so on. Um, crew of up to, what, 12, 14? Yep, 12, 14 was normal. If you're on a search and rescue mission, um, you could put up to 20 in, on board. Those extra guys would be mm. looking at the reserve spots here, uh, looking for fishermen, sailors, mm. things like that out in the water. Did you participate in any SAR? No, I didn't. I came close, but no, I didn't. Okay. Not not generally, no. Although we, uh, looking at ships and things like that up, up, up off Butterworth, but there's no, no missing people. And what's the future for this particular uh, aircraft? Now that it's here, it's been reassembled, it's... Um... The things we need to do is just regular maintenance, keeping it clean, tidy. A few little rust spots which are starting to come out now, we're painting those. And just general tidiness of the aeroplane and keeping it open for the public. Which, of course, is why it's here. Um, I've heard rumours about air conditioning and powering the uh, the internals. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. Hopefully we'll get the air conditioning in soon because it gets pretty hot in here. You can spend about five minutes on a hot day and it's just too hot. You have to get out. That's so, a pressurised hull in the sun, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah, it is, yeah. Now, you're also a volunteer at the Queensland Air Museum. What, what do you do here? Well, as I said... Just cleaning up the aeroplane after after visits uh, and maintenance on the aircraft. Not only this aircraft, anything else that needs to be done around the, the museum. Mm-hmm. We do sort of stick our heads in every now and then and give them a hand where, where needed, but mostly we sit on the Orion and just keep it... Because it, it's a big job to look after. It's the biggest aeroplane here. Yes. So it needs a lot of work, a lot of tender loving care. And would you recommend volunteering here? Has it been a good experience for you? Oh, definitely. No matter what, what people do, you know, we've got people here who are gardeners, things like that. Um, so, yeah, come on down and, uh, and join us. 
that word camaraderie springs to my mind as a volunteer. I think there's a great experience of that. Well, look, thank you very much, Chris. It's been good talking to you and all the best with your volunteering work here. And we look forward to seeing the ongoing (laughs) maintenance and improvements of the uh, Lockheed Orion display. Thank you. Thanks, Gary. Thanks very much. So that was Chris. Next, I sat down with Peter Scavell in the galley of the Orion. Way down the rear of the aircraft, there is this very well-appointed galley with a table and a bench seat for for eating, very comfortable, and uh, some bunks that are available for crew rotations, crews getting, getting a rest on one of their very long flights. And, uh, of course, don't forget that this was initially uh, designed by Lockheed as a commercial airliner, the Electra. And so there is plenty of room, and it is well-appointed, and I'm sure that air crew and everybody flying in the Orions appreciated the fact on these very long sorties that they could uh, get a meal, they could sit down, and indeed, uh, as they rotated through their Uh, rosters to get a rest as well and have a lie down. So this is me talking to Peter Scavell. Yeah, g'day mate. Um, I was born in Sydney and raised and I was a manual labourer and then my brother came up to me and said, Pete, you're becoming a bum, why don't you join the Air Force? (laughs) So, and I said, no, I'll have to get a haircut. And and he thought that was hilarious, but he was in the Navy, so... uh, (laughs) It became a bit of a challenge, so I applied, and the buggers took me, and um, I was sort of hoping they'd knock me back. But um, in the end, I was really happy. It was the great best decision I've ever made in my life. And uh, I started off and did, did rookies at Edinburgh. That's your basic training. And then went to Wagga for my trade training on the engines in general. And um, then... Uh, as a posting, I requested Edinburgh, where these Orions were based. That was 1975, mm-hmm. 76. And so I got posted to these, and so I was quite happy about that because I knew they went around the world, so I got to travel for free. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I was an engine fitter on the props, much the same as um, Chris, uh, props and engines. And um, I did cross-training on airframes and then um, with a view to becoming a flight engineer. And after about five years, I applied for a flight engineer. I knew they were short. So they accepted me and I did all the training and that was really hard. That was the hardest thing I've ever done. Yeah. Yeah, because you had to know everything, cross the T's, dot the I's. Well, tell us, what sort of things did you have to know? What does a flight engineer need to know? Well, basically you are the aircraft systems expert uh, so anything that goes wrong you have enough background knowledge to fix it uh, if it's a part on the engine that's failed we had a bit of a head start so we could go out and do an, a change on a starter motor or a start control valve or whatever um, those are sort of the mechanical things we used to do the theory things we had to know uh, the electrics and the aeroplane and they had to know that so well that you were able to draw, draw the um, AC and DC distribution program, the schematic. You had to be able to draw it to answer the questions in the exams. Okay. <laughs> that, was, that was hard. Uh, and a good example of that is if you have a number two or three generator failure 
number four is always there in standby to take over that electrical load and then you have to explain and draw how it happened mm -hmm. through the transfer relays and whatnot so it wasn't easy but general duties on the aircraft were that we basically did everything up the front end except fly part of the, the pre-takeoff uh, duties were weight and balance so mm -hmm. we had to weigh everything that came on the aeroplane mm -hmm. and then figure out where it was going to get stored or where it was normally stored and then we'd had a slide rule uh, on a sheet of paper and we worked out the actual centre of gravity and the final all-up wow. weight because yeah. the centre of gravity had to fall between 16 and 32% of the MAC and the mean, the mean aerodynamic cord mm -hmm. otherwise the aeroplane oh. yeah. so um, yeah so we worked all that out and then uh, the pilot set their trim accordingly for takeoff, and we did the takeoff data calculations. Like, it's not just um, write down horsepower; it's what's temperature, what's the QNH, and what sort of horse QNH, QNH pressure, pressure altitude, okay. you know, um, barometric pressure. Yep. You know, when they say one zero one three, yeah. 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 So we had to take into account all of these things uh, mm -hmm. to calculate the takeoff data. Anyway, then we would start the engines under the pilot's command and then taxi and then take off. We'd set the takeoff thrust and, the, and then the climb thrust and then the cruise. Uh, and then in between all that, we'd handle any emergencies or any malfunctions that happened. We'd usually get the co-pilot to give us a hand reading our checklist and we'd sort the problems out. And you were very hands-on when it came to shutting down an engine in flight and, and balancing thrust and so on. Was that your role as well? Yeah, we, um, as normal procedure was to shut down number one engine on the left wing um, for loiter and that would save us fuel. Mm. And the captain would say, Pete, shut down number one now. Okay, so let's just reach up and push the feather button. Now, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, but did the captain have anything to do while you were on board? It sounds like you were doing everything. No, he flew it. <laughs> okay, so he did do something. Oh, yeah, him and the co-pilot, uh, that's what they did. If they, if they touched any of my switches, I'd smack them on the wrist. <laughs> it's just such a, a rare sight these days. Well, it doesn't happen anymore, does it? And certainly passengers flying in commercial aircraft never see a flight engineer because they don't exist anymore. That's right, they don't know what they're missing. <laughs> so having a third person up there uh, essentially sharing the control of the aircraft is a thing of the past really, yeah. isn't it? Are there flight engineers being used anywhere these days? Only on old aeroplanes that are being operated. Mm. Not There's no new built aeroplanes that use flight engineers and so we're dinosaurs. And that goes back to the days, does it not, where aircraft became sufficiently complicated and uh, and heavy and large for two operators not to be able to keep up with everything, four engines and all of that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, that's correct. Um, on this particular aircraft, having the third man in the cockpit was, was very, very essential. It was good because third pair of eyes mm -hmm. and you're operating sometimes down as low as 50 feet off the water so and you've got this guy flying the airplane this guy is a safety pilot and then I did every monitored everything else as well as mm. our, our safety 
And inside and out, I imagine, because if somebody comes into the Orion and they're guided through, they'll see the, that third seat. They'll see they're all forward-facing seats in the flight deck, and the, the centre one is higher. It's raised higher than the others. looks a bit like a throne. It is. Yeah. Well, it's elite. It's elite, it's the yes. Elite, it's the yeah. important person is there. <laughs> and um, so your role is, I, I imagine that gives you great visibility as well from that location. Yeah, well, you didn't always sit that high. You could lower the seat down. <laughs> But it was the best seat in the house. Yeah. And quite often, um, as the aeroplane was purpose-built for anti-submarine warfare, um, quite often we had a visual on a submarine that was snorkelling, mm-hmm. uh, had his radar up and didn't realise we were there. Most of the time the submarine didn't know we were there. Mm-hmm. And so the flight engineer would get a visual mm-hmm. and then we could put a tax in on that. So, yeah. So what are your personal memories you talked about traveling around the world now you know this is a a beautiful airframe to be inside just sitting here now with you these comfortable seats there's plenty of room you've got a galley you've got the air conditioning and so on so i guess in that sense there's a certain level of creature comfort but you were you're up in there for a long time weren't you on some of these uh, operations what was it like to operate in them fantastic i mean it's just like because we've got this wonderful galley that we can have really good meals prepared but in general, it was a lot less fatiguing because if you're in a noisy, horrible, smelly old airframe, it's fatiguing. Yeah. It makes it worse. But uh, these were great. and You arrived ready to race to the bar. <laughs> and how many hours did you have in the air with uh, Orion's? Um, I had three and a half thousand flight engineer hours and another 500 or so as a groundie. Because going away on trips with the aircraft, yeah. Any uh, incidents that were a bit of a worry at the time? Well, we were heavily involved with the Cold War, and mm. not many people in Australia knew that. And we had a few encounters with Soviet Soviet ships that I wouldn't like to repeat. Yeah. Yeah, that, um, a little bit scary. And you were tracking, logging, surveilling, is that right? Yeah, we're gathering intel. And um, just the way we went about it sometimes was a bit worrying. (laughs) Can't tell you much about that. Uh, You'd have to kill me. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, so, uh, yeah. Now, uh, obviously, the Air Force was called upon from time to time to do search and rescue with these aircraft because they are so well equipped to find things (laughs) at sea. Uh, I believe your son also has a connection with the Orions. Yeah, he um, was posted to Orions after his pilot's course. And then, uh, poor bugger, because he had to put up with my shadow. <laughs> Even though I haven't been there for a long time, there's always the, he's your father. Yeah. Yeah, he copped that a fair bit. But he did really well for himself, and he ended up as a QFI on the um, Orion, which is the Qualified Flying Instructor, which is the squadron check bolt basically mm. and uh, he did several trips to the Middle East and was also involved with the MH370 search in WA in this aeroplane this very aircraft mm. and even the one in the Middle East he flew was this aeroplane mm-hmm. and um, he was asked to go to America um, to VP30 in Florida and do a conversion onto the new aircraft, the P-8, Poseidon. And so he did that, and then he was seconded. Uh, the US Navy must have liked him, because they asked him to be an instructor at VP-30, 
uh, he was there for a couple of years. So he was converting people onto the, the new P8 as well. So that's a really good posting. Proud, proud dad much? Oh, ab- absolutely, yeah, yeah. He's done really well. So, look, thank you, Peter. It's great to talk to you. You're a volunteer at the Queensland Air Museum also. You're in here most Tuesdays and Wednesdays in the high-vis with uh, all the other guys from the workshop. Mm. What are your roles here? What do you do normally? Well, because I was crew on the um, uh, on this aircraft, I get called upon a lot to um, give some tours. Uh, but then generally we're just doing maintenance, general maintenance. Last week I... Touched up all, I don't know if you noticed, I touched up all the propellers with black. <laughs> Nobody knows until they tell them. <laughs> I'll go and have a look on the way out. I'm sure they look great. What are the plans for the future? Like, it, it's on display here. It's open when there's a guide. Uh, what What are you planning to do to improve the display in the future? Well, this, this aircraft has the potential to be the best display anywhere in the world of an Orion, mm-hmm. uh, especially when we get ground power on and the air conditioning. No other Ryans are open like this one. And uh, wow. even even in America, the ones they have in museums aren't displayed like this. Mm. People just can't go in the cockpit. Okay. Yeah. So we look forward to the day when we can have air conditioning in here and some lighting and it becomes yeah. a little more climate controlled because obviously a pressurised hull isn't much yeah. fun under the sun, is it, when it's closed up all the time? No. Um, we look forward to that. We'll keep our listeners uh, apprised of that, and I think we'll make a big deal about it as soon as we can We can unveil that. But, Peter, thank you very much, mate. It's great to talk to you, and I know that you guys are doing a fantastic job here. The story of how this aircraft operated in the Air Force, but how this particular airframe got here mm. to Caloundra is quite a story. And uh, we've told many of our visitors that 760 was... The aircraft that um, located Tony Bullimore in 1997, the uh, overturned uh, round-the-world yachtsman. So it has a great history, as do you, my friend. And uh, it's great talking to you today. Thank you. Uh, Thanks, Gary. Appreciate it, mate. So that's our episode today. Thanks for listening. Next week, you're going to hear from QAM volunteer Ted Gray. Ted kept a very detailed photographic and written diary and and record of the process by which A9760, having flown its final flight from Edinburgh, South Australia, to Sunshine Coast Airport at Maroochydore, was parked over on the grass, uh, out of the way, and because it had to be, it was there for quite a long time while it was being dismantled, and then each part was trucked across to Caloundra some 37 kilometres away, and then the volunteers who had dismantled it had the onerous task of reassembling this massive aircraft. That's a great story. Very interesting to hear about how they went through that and and, and, uh, succeeded in bringing that aircraft into the condition that it is today so that you can enjoy it when you come and visit, which please do open every day from 10am till 4pm, every day except Christmas Day and Uh, Good Friday, and uh, we would love to see you. Tell us you've been listening to the podcast. Let us know that uh, you are one of our growing band of loyal podcast listeners, and if you have any suggestions or questions about future episodes that we might be able to tackle, we'd love to hear from you. So that's our episode. Thank you for listening. Come in and see us soon. Bye for now.